0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your co-host, Katie Halper.
1: And I'm Matt Taibbi, the other. Just, just a rando. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly, I'm also part of the show, yeah. uh, technically. Yeah. Um, so how, how are you doing, Katie?
0: I'm okay, you?
1: I'm good, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about seceding.
0: Uh, what does that mean?
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna declare the, uh, the TAS, the Taibbi Autonomous Zone. Nice. Okay. Um, I I might call it Novotayibovsk. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't decided. Um, um, The 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 name. I go back and forth on the different names. But I'm starting to settle into the routine of being quarantined, and the outside world is just not looking terribly attractive these days. So,
0: rue quarantine.
1: Rue quarantine. What's that?
0: Routine quarantine.
1: Right. Quar. Routine.
0: Quar routine. Yes, that's better. You see, you are learning from me and my pun genius. That is the reason I make puns on the show, is because I want to empower others.
1: That's right, yeah. You're the Burgess Meredith to my punning Rocky.
0: Exactly.
1: Except you don't get that reference.
0: Yes, I do, <laughs> do you? And, he okay. also, yeah. and he also played the penguin, right?
1: Uh, did he? Did Burgess Meredith play the penguin? Is that true, Dan?
2: Yes, he did, he
1: did. He did? In which one?
0: Old school ones, like the show, I think, right? Yeah, the 60s
1: TV show. Fantastic, Boom. love it. Love who's it. The
0: cult- who's the pop culture person now? That's right. Now we add That's right. that and punning. I'm just, I feel so bad for Matt. I know. It's I'm like, just completely um,
1: outnumbered. I mean, if you yeah. had said Cesar Romero, I might have had something to say. Right. Frank Gorshin, but Burgess Meredith, I didn't get that. So yeah. very good. Very good. Um, with a lot of stuff, obviously, world is falling apart. Always good for us media folk when when uh, when... The world is in a state of total disrepair, so we yeah. have lots to talk about. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess we should start with, um, as you know, in the show we, we do the four food groups of news. Republicans suck, Democrats suck. Isn't that weird? And isn't that terrible? And uh, I decided to pick a fight with Katie on the first one because I know Ooh. she doesn't agree with me on this one.
0: Oh yeah! Oh good! Wow!
1: I have Democrats suck, and I'm just going with uh, the the triple flip flop. What do you call that when you somebody when you flip flop three times? I mean, it's almost
0: like it's yeah, I guess. But it's almost like status quo. It's interesting because if you're going back, if you if you if you wind up where you were. Right. Is that what they're doing? Yes. Yeah. That's like really
1: they've skipped kind of an important part in the middle. But yes.
0: Right. That's really bad because then you it's like a flip flop for no. The cost benefit analysis is just, you know, what are the rewards like when you have a flip flop one two flip flop, then at least you're conceivably, ostensibly arriving at a different place that's beneficial. But when you do the flip-flop-flip, you get the terrible PR that comes with flip-flopping and you haven't made any gains.
1: So obviously well maybe perhaps not so obviously what I'm talking about is the consternation to acceptance back to consternation over the issue of uh going outside uh for political reasons in the middle of a pandemic, if you remember not so long ago. Uh, Democratic p- politicians like Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio were taking the hardest possible line against anybody who went outside for any reason and violated the stay-at-home orders. Uh, if you remember, he, he <laughs> Cuomo uh, lashed out at protesters, uh, the conservatives who, who were going outside um, caught, protesting the, the lockdown, saying, you have no right to jeopardize my health and my children's health and your children's health. Um he, uh, there was a New York City tanning salon owner uh, who was fined $1,000 for reopening. Uh, and then just days later, Cuomo said that he uh, stands with those defying uh, stay-at-home orders. Nobody is sanctioning the, uh, the arson and the thuggery and the burglaries, but the prote- protesters and the anger... And the fear and the frustration, yes, yes, and the demand is for justice. Bill de Blasio, similarly, if you might remember, had a famous incident where he, t- he told uh, some folks in the Jewish community that the time for warnings has passed because they had gone to a funeral and violated social distancing guidelines. Uh, that was ridiculous.
0: And, That's what we yeah, call a Shonda, by the way.
1: Is that a Shonda? Yeah. Uh, he, he probably doesn't know that.
0: No, it's Ashanda that the, that they did that. The, the the were they orthodox or Hasidic? Yes, I think they were Hasidic. Anyway, yeah. it's Ashanda that they did that terrible.
1: Right. And then uh, very shortly after that, he said we uh, when the protest started and everybody was outside in the city, uh, he said, we have always honored nonviolent protests. And then so that went on for a while. And we had help public health officials telling us that literally the risk of not protesting was more lethal than uh, than the risk of going outside in the pandemic. Uh, we had letters signed by a thousand public health officials tell, telling us that, that that they had done that analysis and and uh, believe that. And now we're back to, because Donald Trump moronically obviously uh, had a an indoor rally exactly. in Tulsa and everybody, you know, and Bernie is not exempt here. Bernie was one of the people who who was cheering on the uh, the, the protests, and then also said uh, about the Trump thing. Trump's a threat to health. Uh, his his rejection of medical advice endangers not only those here, but those they they come in contact with. He's a, a threat to the health and well-being of the country. Blah blah blah. So can I ask uh, a question though? Yeah. Um,
0: what's the non-lethal lethal thing about going outside the protests? Can you clarify that?
1: So, for example, uh, we have. Uh, PhD, a doctor from uh, Johns Hopkins. Jennifer Anuzo, uh, we should always evaluate the risks and benefits of efforts to control the virus. In this moment, the public health risks of not protesting to demand an end to systemic racism greatly exceed the harms of the virus. So not only it, it wasn't, you know, we recognize that this moment is... It, it, you know is dangerous for the pandemic but we believe that the political benefits outweigh that no it was literally the the public health issue so uh so we had that and now we're now we're back to worrying about health and if you know, remember when before the protests the black lives matter protests we were calling things like the georgia governor's decision to to try to reopen that state uh, an experiment in human sacrifice uh and now
0: well, he was—he was pretty late to understanding that you could be asymptomatic, right? And uh, carry sure. it. Sure.
1: Yeah. No. Right. I mean, he, he's—he—I'm he, not arguing whether he's right, right, right or yeah. wrong. I'm talking about the attitudes of people who <clears throat> decided to apply different criteria to these different circumstances.
0: So. All right. Here's why I disagree with you. I think that you could argue. I mean, it does come down to a cost-benefit analysis, obviously, right? Now, I think you could argue. I would disagree, but I think it's totally coherent to say if you're going to justify the George Floyd protests, you have to justify the um, what? How would you what would you call the protests against the, the anti
1: lockdown protests, yes, protests, the, the anti yeah. the, lockdown the, 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 the protests, the pro warship protests? Yeah,
0: sure. OK, let's call them anti lockdown protests and versus George Floyd protests. OK, mm-hmm. so I think that you can make a parallel there because they're both protests, although I clearly think one is more justified than the other. Um, yeah, and the, they're both the virus out- is
1: really isn't really interested in what the
0: OK, mm-hmm. hold on. Yes, I understand. But they are different things like even on the virus level, right? They're both outside. hmm. OK, so there's a parallel there. They're both outside and they're both they lack centralization. they're not centralized. Right. OK. OK. So I think there's a parallel there, even though and there's one again, if you look, at, I do think that moral questions come into play, but let's just talk about the. Vi- let's just pause that. And we're just talking about the virus part. Right. I think mm-hmm. there's a parallel. I don't think there's a parallel though with the Trump indoors rally, and outdoor protests.
1: I mean, the only difference is indoor versus outdoor.
0: Right. We know there is a difference between indoor and outdoor, correct? Yes. Okay. So that's one. That's one thing. Okay. Look, this is great. We have some agreement here. Okay. Now the other question is the kind of format of it, and in one case you have a decentralized protest, and in the other case you have a political rally, organized. and put on by an individual. Now, that's pretty different, I would say, because if if Donald Trump, for instance, had not called for that rally, a rally wouldn't have happened. Whereas those other protests, there's not like one person we can we can pin it on. Um, and I don't think its I wouldn't use the word pin it on for the Black Lives Matter protests, but that's kind of a separate issue. So I think those are important differences. So even though I disagree with comparing the and and then you have On top of that, you have the cost-benefit analysis. So the cost-benefit analysis being that I don't think it's justified to protest.
1: So I can't go to my dad's funeral, but I can pull down the statue of George Washington.
0: They're both protests, I guess, right? The stay at home and the... Yeah. And that thing. So one I think is a stupid protest and one I think (laughs) is a legitimate protest. That's one of the things, but I do. And I think protesting like the murder of George Floyd And by extension, or not even by extension, explicitly protesting other abuses um, and, and, you know, homicidal behavior of the police is a public good. And you could argue, I mean, like that doctor said, you can argue on a very kind of immediate level because what is it? Three. How many people are killed every day in the United States by cops? I think three. So ostensibly raising awareness and changing the police departments and police culture does lower the number of deaths. And also, if we talk is that, about-
1: Is that, that going to equal 100,000 in a month? Or what do, you, what do we think?
0: Well, no, we have to look at the number of people who would be infected by these, by these things.
1: You're looking at this from your point of view. I mean, from the point of view of the people who are protesting a lockdown, I don't have enough money to pay for my uh, kids' food because my, I, I can't go to my job. So I'm going out to, to protest. And so, but you, now you're going to tell me that your protest is okay and my protest is illegal because you think the, the cost-benefit analysis is more important for, for yours than, than it is for mine. Yeah. Which which is, I mean, just imagine how that sounds to people who don't have your your political views. Like if you're gonna tell people that they can't go to church, they can't go to a funeral, but you have mayors and governors saying, it's okay, we want to encourage you to go to these protests. It's okay to violate my own stay at home orders, as long as you have a cause that you really, really believe in that I happen to agree with. But if, you know if you want if you want to do something that you find personally important um it's against the law and you're and you're a murderer
0: it depends what your priorities are i don't think it's that weird to make a judgment on that i'm not i'm not thinking forget so the legal issue is different but in terms of the moral issue again just going back to the i don't think the trump i mean the, the other discussion of the different kinds of protests that's kind of a different discussion but in terms of the Trump rally. And I know you said Bernie isn't exempt and there are things that Bernie has said that I disagree with but I don't think it's it's unfair to criticize Trump for that while not criticizing it's fine
1: it's fine to criticize Trump for that but you can't you can't say that the pro the, the, the other protests didn't increase the risk of spreading the pandemic
0: well you can't, right but it's less of a risk because outdoors.
1: Less. And again, and again, it's it's like a
0: question of what are you going to do? Like you're going to tell. That's why I think the parallel between the anti lockdown protests and the Black Lives Matter protests is much strong, is much stronger uh, than the Trump rally versus outdoor protests against the murder of George Floyd rally, because one is someone you can actually. It's like one person making that decision. And you can easily condemn that one person.
1: Right. But again, you have politicians in all these places who have instituted stay-at-home orders for everybody else. And they've, in the the harshest possible language, have told people that if they violate these orders, that they're they're going to be condemned as public health menaces, that they're going to be fined. And then when a, a, a political cause comes along that they decide that they agree with, they're going to tell this other population of people that it's completely okay to go outside uh, and do whatever they want, which is, which to me is I, – I don't know how you, you look at that and don't think that that's hypocritical. Uh, and I'm not, this is not a valid judgment for me on which one is more, right. uh, more beneficial or which cause is more worthy than the other. It's just, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a politician and you're, and you're violating your own orders – And, you know, and and as far as the the Trump thing goes, um, he's clearly wrong to to hold this uh, rally and and especially to do it indoors with people without masks. And I think that was reflected in the fact that people didn't turn out for the rally because they they didn't want to go get the disease. Right. Uh, but but it, so we compli- can agree that
0: there's a difference between the Trump rally and the Black Lives Matter protests.
1: I don't know that there's politically there's a huge difference there because we again, you had politicians all across the spectrum endorsing these 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 protests that clear that clearly, I think any public health official would agree. Increase the risk of spreading the pandemic at a time when you know a month ago, when the moral panic was in a different direction, we were deciding was the most important thing in history to keep everybody indoors. So, I guess I'm just saying it's I don't I don't know how anybody can take it seriously when when you've you've been you've said nothing about the public health risks that are clearly. Uh, it, it come into play when people all across the, the the country go outside. Now you may think that those that's justified, but there's clearly a public interest there. And then you turn around what? after ignoring that for weeks, and you're right back to to, to, den- to denouncing Trump for 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 doing the same thing essentially. I, I just know. think
0: you could easily argue that there's no pressing need or no. Um no uh, disaster that Trump is responding to or trying to mitigate in holding a rally. And there is in the other case. I will grant you that with the anti lockdown protest, there's much more of a philosophical quandary. I think it could be resolved. We should actually have some philosophers on to talk about this. But I just think that the indoor outdoor difference is big enough that it's not there's not a lot of gray. There's like the indoor outdoor there's the political, organized political rally versus decentralized um, protests that are going to happen anyway.
1: Okay, so my, my final position on this is that I don't see a huge difference between a, po- a politician endorsing, publicly endorsing a rally that violates uh, his or her own orders and a, and a politician who organizes a rally. I mean, to me, that's, that's re- well, what, it's relatively in, one, in the same ballpark of this, you know?
0: Yeah, but in one case, it would happen... In the Trump case, but for Trump's decision to hold that rally, it would not happen. In the other case, regardless of politicians' endorsements, it was going to happen.
1: Who knows? I mean, what if Andrew Cuomo said we don't, the, the pandemic risk is so great, we don't want you going out and uh, holding you know, a rally in Brooklyn with 10,000 people today?
0: I don't think it would. I mean, I, I don't think that if that were true, then he probably would have done that.
1: Okay. In other words,
0: if if he could have shaped that, okay.
1: Let's go on to Republicans suck.
0: Okay, Republicans suck. So for Republicans suck, Dan, can we play this video of um, uh, people probably know that there is a a debate between there's a you know Republicans are proposing and Democrats are proposing different things about how to deal with police reform. Um, So if we could just watch this video of uh, Senator John Barrasso uh, criticizing the Democrats for their criticisms of their bill. And the, some of the differences are that the Republicans don't want um, to end qualified immunity and they don't want to um, ban chokeholds or um, no-knock warrants.
3: The Justice Act that Tim has put together in which I'm an original co-sponsor has about 70% overlap with what they're working on in the House. 70% overlap. And the Democrats in the Senate are filibustering it. They're not filibustering an amendment. They're not filibustering a final vote on the bill they're filibustering even having a discussion on the floor of the United States of the Justice Act I mean, why would these people who say they are for something and it's an important issue that why would they do this why would they grandstand on this issue there's only one reason It's because they would rather have the issue to campaign on than finding a solution for the American people and everyone in the press ought to ask every member of the Democrat Senate Why they would vote no on something on which there is 70% overlap and agreement and includes so many of the things that are important to them. When George Floyd was murdered, people took to the streets and now they're turning their eyes to Congress and saying do something, pass a law. Chuck Schumer said bring something to the floor by July 4th. Well, here we are. So why is every Democrat lining up to say Never mind, forget about it. Nancy Pelosi said, I wanna go to the, I go to conference on this bill. I don't think I've ever said this before, but Chuck Schumer ought to listen to Nancy Pelosi. But that's not what we have here. We have Chuck Schumer with a chokehold on the Justice Act and our opportunity for police reform in
0: America. First of um, all, come on, a chokehold? I mean, I, as a people may know this about me, I like making puns, but I would not make a pun about a chokehold.
1: Yeah, that was pretty weak. I'm not gonna put a knee on the neck yeah, of this exactly, bill.
0: exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we can do this because we're not Republican senators, but uh, yeah, well, and we're also we, we, not.
1: We've also, you know, we went to graduate humor school, so you we. Know, right, it's different. We know. What <laughs> we're we're doing. licensed professionals. Yeah,
0: we're licensed. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't try this shit like? at all. Yeah, I'm not gonna.
1: Why is Chuck Schumer firing 50 rounds into in, into this unarmed bill standing in the doorway? Uh, right. The one thing I, I did want to say about this is that uh, I'm going to do something that media people normally don't do, which is uh, cop to the fact that I haven't read either. Bill, so I don't have an opinion on, any, on anything except for the fact that 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 joke was tasteless,
0: tasteless yeah, joke. Yeah, that was like um, not a good
1: joke. I can tell I was, that right. from the video. You haven't
0: read them. I thought you would have. This is kind of one of your lanes.
1: No, I haven't read it. No, I'm I'm, I'm I'm trying to turn to keep my personal happiness levels at the highest possible. In the
0: Taz, the Taibia. the Taz,
1: yeah, taz, taz, exactly. We haven't
0: even talked about the contours of that. Yeah, I mean, the, there are some important differences. The qualified immunity difference, the um, no-knock warrants, and the chokehold. So, again, either that was a joke or he maybe has something wrong with him. I, I mean, he's such a weird affect. I wonder if he doesn't even think that's a joke. He just thinks that's like a poetic thing which is such a great metaphor for how out of touch this guy is.
1: All right, so for Isn't That Weird, uh, Dan, if we could see the uh, headline that's entitled Judge Clears Man Who Broke Into Wrong House to Fulfill Client's BDSM Sex Fantasy.
0: Hey, when that happens.
1: All right, talk about getting off. An Australian man accused of breaking into the rail <laughs> of this lead. This lead. This is so classic, like, journalism school pyramid lead. Uh, talk about getting what's off.
0: Pyramid- what's pyramid lead mean?
1: It's like a... It's, it's what they teach, like beginners in journalism, where you you start with a, uh, a declarative statement that feeds you into the, la- the larger uh, story. Okay, so talk, talk about getting off uh, an Australian man accused of breaking into the wrong house as he sought to fulfill... Another man's sex fantasy has been found not guilty. This is in Australia. Uh, On Thursday, a judge in New South Wales cleared Terence Leroy of charges stemming from an incident last July where he was one of two men hired to carry out a stranger's sexual fantasy of being tied up while clad in his underpants. The case of mistaken identity began after a man living in western New South Wales Uh, went on Facebook looking for someone willing to tie him up and then rub a broom handle around his underwear, according to the Australian Associated Press. Quote, he was willing to pay $5,000 if it was, quote, really good, Judge Sean Grant noted in the ruling. Uh, Then down at the bottom, if we could see the, what what basically what happened is the guy went in, this guy was paid to go into somebody's house and do this role-playing thing where he was going to, where two men were going to be carrying machetes, and then they were going to, uh, rub a broom handle around his underpants. But he went into the wrong house and somebody yelled off, yelled out, bugger off, it's too early because he was expecting somebody else to come in his house. The victim then turned on the light and saw two men carrying machetes standing next to his bed. At that point, the, the two intruders realized their mistake. They said, sorry, mate, and bye. And uh, then this is my favorite thing because this is in the court uh, transcripts. During the trial, Leroy's attorney successfully argued that the whole mishap, as he told the court, arose from, quote, a commercial agreement to tie up and stroke a semi-naked man in his underpants with a broom. So I always love it when when something really bizarre ends up in an official court document. Right. That's, right. Uh, that's can we, really Sorry, good. can we
0: go back to that article, though? There was just one thing I wanted to highlight. What I like is that if it was really good, he was willing to pay $5,000. But how, how do you measure that? What makes... The broom. Yeah, what, what makes broom broom all what do we want to call it? Yeah.
1: Brooming or brooming, uh, I like that.
0: Yeah. What makes broom. brooming really good?
1: Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, what how, how do you how do you uh, judge a thirty five hundred dollar brooming versus a five thousand? Like, yeah, it,
0: exactly. They I, mean, I hope is, what I hope is that they got something no matter what. This is what I think should have happened. I, I mean, honestly, that guy maybe should be sent to jail because I don't like the labor rights or lack of labor rights in, in this setup. I want there to be a guaranteed minimum.
1: Oh, that's right, yes, because you have, right, yes. Yes,
0: actually don't send him to jail because I don't believe in the carceral state, obviously. So I just want there to be a flat fee, no matter what, just for showing up. In fact, I'm inspired by this story because it raises this issue that we need to, <laughs> that we need to talk about, silent no more, and that issue is the guaranteed minimum for for brooming? For brooming, yes. Because you yeah. get there, you have the machetes. I mean, that's some labor. And I just want to make sure that we take this moment to this, raise awareness about working conditions. Is this like um, the
1: sort of screen screenwriters guild? You can you, you can't get yeah. less than however much for, for a screenplay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, she yeah.
1: get I mean, maybe maybe we can establish like a two thousand dollar brooming minimum or something yeah, like
0: that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then also you have, to, you have to establish beforehand what the criteria is for really good versus mediocre.
1: Right, it has to be in writing, codified. Anyway, isn't that weird?
0: Yes, that is weird. Okay, so for, for the Isn't That Terrible, um, this is a follow-up to last week's, um, Matt, your Isn't That Terrible last week was a very important story that was neglected by the media um, because it challenges and threatens the, the shark lobby, the powers that be, and it was about how uh college age lifeguards were being asked to multitask and both like enforce social distancing and also keep their eye on vicious, murderous sharks. Uh, you, you, you took some heat on that
1: for that online. I saw. Oh,
0: did I? I didn't see it.
1: Yeah, a lot of people accuse you of being anti shark.
0: Well, I mean, they as they should because I am anti shark and I own my anti sharkism. Okay, so in th- what we have in this article, uh, in this in this in this tale is a man who caught a shark at Delaware's Cape Henlopen State Park Beach and he grabbed it with his bare hands. He dragged him by the tail. He wrestled with it and then he uh, grabbed he pulled apart the shark's mouth and showed it off to the crowd that had gathered for uh, by the shoreline and someone said that's a big ass shark. Um, And actually we have video of it. If we could see that video that would be uh, great. (laughs) Okay, so for people for people who are just listening and not viewing, Matt really lost it when the guy pried open his mouth. Well, why why don't you describe it since you found it so funny? What what was it? It's just
1: such a dude thing to do. It's yeah.
0: almost like a porning the news, actually. This mm-hmm. guy is very built, uh, a very muscular physique, I would say. Uh, very tanned, tanned as well. Very tanned, yeah, bronze, um, and then very muscular. There is some weird, perhaps, I don't know if it's sexual tension between the man and the shark, but it's definitely could be a, a porn, the guy on his own. Right, like it, uh, there doesn't have to be any eroticism between the man and the shark, although we should leave that window open. But it's definitely kind of, a, uh, there's something very manly and sexual about just his performance.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just such a guy thing to do. Like, it, it, so, this and actually like- reminds me of a story. Uh, my favorite author, Nikolai Gogol, who is a Russian comic author. Yeah. He, re- he was writing letters. He was He was on vacation in Italy. And he was trying to define, for a friend of his, the uh, uh, definition of a Russian word, which is kind of like cheapness or cheesiness. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that the, there was, he was watching out at the, the, the balcony of his villa. There was a man on one side who was clearly in love with a woman on the other side and had been trying to court her. And uh, she was ignoring him. And in the pond uh, in between, there were these swans uh and the guy every morning would go and strip down basically nude go into the into the pond and caress the swans right like he was trying to impress her but both right to make by his de- body to make her jealous yeah or something right and and the the but the moral of the story is that it worked right like she she fell for the like it's just such a it's such a cheesy a creepy thing for this for this guy to do. He, he was probably sure that some woman in the on the beach was totally impressed by his right domi- dominance of the shark. Uh, right. And I wonder if he was right. Do you think he was right?
0: I don't. Right. That's well, that's why it's pointing the news. This is could be the opening.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Hey, the d- woman, hey, did you see me? Hey, yeah. Did
0: you see me? No, that's a big ass shark.
1: Right. The yeah. woman On
0: the beach <laughs> said that now she's holding a baby. So that adds another layer to it. Maybe she throws the baby off like literally drops the baby. Hopefully the shark is far and away enough for her to do that. Maybe she throws the baby off. It's like almost like the awake, what, the Kate Chopin or like um, a doll's house, um, Ibsen. about uh, right. woman kind of throwing off the confines of motherhood and, and wife wifedom. Um, and she goes to pursue a life of pleasure with a shark tamer. A sh- he's not a tamer, he's a bit of a shark sadist.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. It, it is. The, it's a little. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the
0: shark put out a call and was like, "I'm looking for a a um strapping, uh, glistening bronzed man to grab me by the to tail." Humiliate me on, a, and, on yeah, a beach on a beach and force my mouth open. And hopefully, he went to the right beach.
1: And so it was. It was a commercial agreement to grab. Uh, yeah. Grab a shark and and stroke uh, a semi naked shark uh, by the teeth. Gone awry, right, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With a, right. Without
0: a broom, he just didn't have his. Without a,
1: without a broom. Yeah, yeah exactly. But
0: the reason that that's terrible, honestly, for me is that uh, it makes puts me in an awkward position where I actually feel shark empathy. I feel bad for the shark because I think it's should. being violated, and I think it's so violent the way he opened his mouth. Um, and I don't like that because that gets in the way of my – it's like my heart gets in the way of my head because what I know there is to do really is to get rid of sharks um, or at least increase the stigma around them. Um, so I don't like this. You want to jack
1: weird. up the shark stigma?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Anyway, it was, it was, a, it was a very good piece of video. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think we learned a lot.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I did, certainly yeah. feel
2: richer for it. Right? Yeah.
0: There's,
2: I also have an issue with the shark – the article oh, the shark thing, but yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we've spent a lot of time on
0: it. No, what is it? What is it? Well,
2: just in the article it says, it's, it seems to imply that this guy caught the shark himself, the, the ripped guy. But you see the dude with the fishing rod who I would assume is the person who actually caught the shark while trying to fish for something.
0: Oh, he's oh. like the other guy, just like the guys with the machetes, there was a pair.
2: Oh, I'm yeah, just, I'm just looking at it. There's a fishing rod. Oh yeah. It just seems to make a lot more sense that somebody caught a shark, exhausted it in the fight, reeled it in, and this guy wants to help him get the hook off, but takes the opportunity to kind of do this exhibition.
0: Oh yeah, you're right, you're
2: right. Otherwise, what's the shark doing? Is the shark sick? (laughs) The shark has to be sick. It's not like this guy just swam up to a shark, (gasps) wrestled it to the shore. Right,
0: you know what? I think that this is a porning the news that we didn't even know about, which Dan just helped us flesh out, so to speak, because I think what happened is probably this this bronze beauty of a man saw a guy trying to hook the shark and was like, oh, let me help you with that. (laughs) <laughs> and now I just want view- non-viewers, list- listeners only to know Matt just took out a- drumsticks and made the, the snare Rim uh, shot. thingy. Rim shot, yeah. But maybe that's it. It's like, oh, wait, you're in distress. You're trying to hook in this shark. Let me just grab this shark for you. And uh, how do you like this? You want me to open its mouth? Anything else you'd like me to do?
1: I love the gratuitous muscle flexes, though, you know? I know. It's like, hey, is that a little bird over there? Or is it a little tiny cat, you know? like. It's
0: like <laughs> or, is it a big, or is it a big shark? Is it a right. big shark, do you is want it, me to yeah. open its mouth? Pry open its mouth, because I could do that. Wow. Great see, stuff. Yeah, great stuff, yeah. So um, as viewers and listeners probably know, uh, last week uh, we stumbled upon a really homoerotic clip between uh, Mark Levin and uh, Charlie Kirk. Uh, where Mark Levin seemed very aroused by Charlie Kirk's very stupid uh, analysis of the great philosophers, the student teacher uh, philosopher relationship and, and how much um, uh, I believe it was Aristotle liked uh, private property. And then we, we, uh, I, I conjectured that, I inferred that uh, Mark Levin engaged in some boner obfuscation by crossing his legs, uh, which Matt, you, you, you thought that was a good thesis. So we decided that we wanted to try to do something called good porning America which is where we you know porn the news we find the kind of subtext or the the uh, text of the sexual tension or opening potential uh, movie opening and this generated a little bit we got some um contributions Pina uh, underscore 69, uh, gave us a really good clip. So let's watch this. So peanut underscore six, 69 tweets out. Can't ever miss with Boris Johnson context. His response to getting called a sexist by John Burkow.
3: No, My Craig indulgent just to prostrate myself
2: before you and- so
0: prostrate myself before you. Okay. That's good. But, uh, it reminded me actually of a, a an even better clip. I, I, I dare say, Uh, with Theresa May. And if we can play that clip, it's really good.
3: Dr. Rupa Hart,
0: Mr. Speaker, nine
3: times the Prime Minister assured us that there'd be no early general election and still it happened. Mm. As recently as this morning, her hapless, ever-changing band of ministers were out on the airwaves assuring us That there would be a meaningful vote tomorrow before this latest twist, this sort of premature parliamentary ejaculation that has put the lie to the claim that she sticks to her guns. Wait for it, there's more. When she won't even tell us when the vote is deferred to, and it would appear that the lady is for turning. How can we or anyone trust anything she says again?
1: (laughs) I'm tempted to say to the honourable lady, if she looks carefully, I think she'll see that I'm not capable of a parliamentary ejaculation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, so, that's pretty good. I mean, that's so explicit; it's not even there. Really. Yeah,
1: that's like, not. I don't think that's quite. I mean, all right, I, that's I love not it on the news. Yeah, yeah, that's not. That's not quite what we're we're looking for. Uh, yeah, we're looking no, you're for, right. We're looking for subtext.
0: Subtext, right. right? Not not open talk of ejaculation.
1: Is that is that what we got?
0: Uh, yeah, and then we can show the edit. Now, here's why we want, we're so grateful to our v- our viewers. Um, while we would have liked more contributions, we did have an interesting, uh, I guess someone kind of in a way took uh, picked up the baton, so to speak, and ran with it and made, I guess, kind of a teaser for the porn that we suggested between Mark Levin and... Aristotle
2: and Plato, who, of course, was the, the age-old student and teacher dynamic. Such a
0: great... Professor. Yes, dear. Will there be any... Extra credit?
1: I am so glad
2: you asked.
3: You're well read, the Republican show for good. Thank you. You're well read, the Republican show for good. Thank you. You look a little tense. Maybe I should give you a background. Yeah, You're well read, the yeah, Republican social good. Thank you. Yeah, I Do
4: you work out?
2: Aristotle said, you know, actually, I think private property serves a role. Yeah. Aristotle said, you know, actually, I think private property serves a role. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: One of my favorite parts of it is a zoom in on the on Mark Levin as he crosses his legs, boner obfuscation move. Um, And then they also had there's a zoom of uh, like the the body of Atlas shrugged. No, it was uh, it
1: was was very well done. Yeah, I like the homage to the 70s porn music. Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow.
1: Those are great. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: if you guys can't (laughs) find more examples of good porning America, then maybe at least please do some Mashups of uh, I mean I, art.
1: I think people have to know where to look. I'm gonna guess like anything that's sort of book TV direction with like right wing intellectuals is gonna yeah. be pretty strong in that regard. C-SPAN in general is probably gonna have some stuff, but uh, yeah, well, have, we'll have to think about that. We'll have to give people a reading uh, like a viewing list. All right, uh, just quickly, there's one one really fun not fun just sort of interesting classic. It's a Trumpy moment from this past week, Dan. If we could take a look first at at this moment from his speech in Tulsa, his his much-decried speech in Tulsa.
3: When you test, a f- when you do testing to that extent, you're gonna find more people. You're gonna find more cases. So I said to my people, "Slow the testing down, please." They test and they test. We got tests that people don't know what's going on. We got tests. We got another one over here. The young man's 10 years old he's got the sniffles he'll recover in about 15 minutes that's a case add up to it that's a case that's a case
1: so he says that and we'll, and we'll get to how crazy that is in a second but then so so after he says this his press secretary Kaylee McEnany is am I, am I pronouncing that right by the way I know I don't even bother to learn the names of Trump press secretaries anymore because their their lives spent they're like they're like dr- Drosophila flies like they they come in they come in and out of the world so quickly it's not it's not worth the investment so uh, Kaylee whatever her name is said that the comments had quote been in jest so immediately after that we get this from Trump and here's Trump on on whether or not he was jesting.
3: Yeah. Kids, let me just tell you, let me make it clear. We have got the greatest testing program anywhere in the world. We test better than anybody in the world. Our tests are the best in the world, and we have the most of them. By having more tests, we find more cases. We did 25 plus, 25 million tests, think of that.
1: Yeah, so it's like a perfect Trump loop, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the thing that I love about him, and we've talked about this before, is that he just steamrolls through those things like, like his brain doesn't even see the, the contradiction right. at all. It, right. like, because, he, I, I, well, I think this now, so <laughs> that's, that must be right. I mean, imagine being a press person for a politician I like Trump, right? You, Your you're boss, you're, sit- you're sitting there in the green room of, of the event watching your boss say all this crazy shit. And immediately you got to start brainstorming. Okay, like, what are we? How are we gonna right. spin that? Right? Like, and everybody, everybody comes up with ideas. Oh, you know, he, he, right. he had an aneurysm. Um, you know, he was kidding, like, you know, here, here are the possibilities. Right. Yeah, right? exactly. And then and then you triage it down to what what the least most ridiculous thing you can possibly say is that you got to say in the next 20 minutes when when it's time to go talk to the press. And you go out there and you put your career on the line and say the president is kidding. And then the, the next thing he does when he's the next time he gets in front of a camera, people ask him if he's kidding. And the first thing he says is, I don't, I kid. I don't, I don't kid. It's like, oh, my God, why would I even why would I ever take this right. job?
0: It's all for he, he has, he has all no for sympathy
1: for his media professionals. You
0: know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine them approach one of his uh, press people approaching him being like, when you undermine and when you contradict what I say, it makes me feel unvalued.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's likely to work. Now you're now you're now you're making (laughs) me sympathetic towards Trump. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, That's amazing that he just says that. I mean, it is like literal ignorance is bliss. I mean, what a metaphor for like putting, you know, the 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 ostriches putting their heads in the sand. Like, does he realize the logic of that? I guess he does.
1: The funny thing is like that, that, that's, that's an example of where Trump, because you can actually imagine Biden doing something like that, where his, his, you know, the not enough spark plugs are firing in the head. So he he can't tell whether he's supposed to lie about hair,
0: hair plugs,
1: hair plugs, exactly. And he, he forgets what his mode of deception is supposed to be, or like, what's my take on this? and he just says what he actually means like mistakenly. Right. Um, that's something that does happen to politicians and uh, but with Trump you usually with Trump it's like uh, it's an it's a lack of embarrassment to tell you what he totally. really thinks about things. Yeah. But in th- in this case it looked a little bit like it might also be confusion too. Yeah, like like, like that like that he like that he actually wasn't aware uh, of how how stupid that was. Right. Uh, right like n- normally he's aware but doesn't care
0: yeah totally
1: I thought that was a be- that was a beautiful Trump moment in the annals of Trump' so them, I think funny. that was a good one so do you think
0: he knew his PR person had said it was a joke
1: I don't know but I, I do I do hope that there's like a support group for ex Me Trump too. press people wouldn't it be really too, yeah. funny they're all, they're all sitting in a, like in a, in a in a church on a, a basement on a Friday yeah. like drinking shitty coffee like yeah. hi my name's Kaylee Mckinnaney and I was a I was a Trump press person.
0: Yeah. Hi, welcome, welcome, you know,
1: Yeah. <laughs> you're right. Tell me your story. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be some Amazing funny stories here. coming out of We should do that. a
0: mashup of that. Right? Actually, if any viewers want to do this or listeners, a mashup of Trump contradicting his press people would be great.
1: It would It would be great. So we have a really interesting guest. We have Omar Wasso who uh, has done some really interesting research, controversial research about uh, the efficacy of violent versus nonviolent protests. He's worked for a long, long time on this study. Actually, one of the things that's most amazing about his work is the sheer quantity of stuff that he looked at. The num the numbers yeah. in his research uh, the documents that he t- talks about in terms of the numbers of headlines that he's compiled. It's unbelievable. Um, and he he got sort of accidentally caught up in in a. Uh, in a controversy. And we thought it would be interesting to uh, bring him on and have him elucidate and explain what his views are, are uh, at length. And it's going to be great talk.
0: And he's an assistant professor of politics at Princeton. Another thing about Omar is that he is uh, the co-founder of the social networking website Black Planet. Mm. I don't know if you remember that. His father is of German Jewish heritage and his mother's African-American. Wassau's paternal grandfather was the mathematician Wolfgang R. Wassau.
1: Nice. Well, it's going to be a great talk and let's uh, let's get right to it.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to talk to you. Uh, wanted to ask you to start off about kind of the backstory about this article that you wrote that's been receiving so much attention um, and and how that got published and how long it took to get published.
4: Yeah, well, first, let me say thank you for having me on. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. The uh, This research, as you kind of alluded to, has been this, <laughs> you know, it's a real epic journey for, for a single paper. I started uh, just to kind of give a little bit of background before even going to graduate school, I was an entrepreneur running a website called blackplanet.com. That was an early social network, um, leading website for, leading social network for African-Americans. And and in the process of running that site, found myself looping over and over again on questions around mass incarceration. This is uh, the early 2000s. And just realized at a certain point that there were some kinds of questions that didn't lend themselves to like a startup, um, and so went back to school to really try and understand the origins of mass incarceration and, you know, why did law and order politics become so salient in our culture? And as I was looking at those questions, this is now like 2005, found that there was uh, this period in the late 60s where it wasn't just, you know, sort of uh, a few protests that escalated to Violence, but 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 uh, you know more than 750 events that were really uh, kind of became the kind of dominant news story for a period of the late 60s, and what was interesting to me was that if you looked at that, there's a period where public opinion shifts. Also, people start focusing a lot on social control, and so as I as I began to see, okay, there's this turn towards law and order and there's this uh sort of it seems to be possibly a response to what's happening on the ground as protesters engage in more aggressive resistance that led me on what became essentially a 15-year journey to try and see how do protest movements uh, influence things like media and ultimately politics and can we make a, a kind of a you know in my initial plots, it was just sort of simple seeing one thing goes up, another thing goes up, another thing goes down. And like, can we can can I do more rigorous statistical tests and and get into that? But um, just to wrap, like part of what was also so hard about this was without being too kind of wonky, things like, protest movements are not in the main of political science and, or at least not historically. And so um, that was one challenge in getting this work published. I was also trying to braid together my training in African-American studies, my PhDs in African-American studies and political science and statistics. And there are just all kinds of ways in which I was trying to build bridges across disciplines but ended up kind of falling between the cracks and so I got rejected multiple times uh, at at, at certain moments felt like I maybe don't belong in the academy and uh, and then you know tried to just keep learning from what was sometimes fairly harsh feedback and to turn that into a better paper which ultimately uh, you know in an incredibly Lucky for me, "Stroke" got published just as protests became one of the most kind of salient issues in American politics. Well, is there two questions
1: arise just from that description. One is why are protest movements not prominent in political science? And two, what was what were some of the harsh feedback that you got as you went through this process?
4: Yeah, good questions. The the so this is not. I, I went back to school in part, really interested in things like you know policing, uh, education policy, and what was striking is that there's a kind of hierarchy in um, in, 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 the politi- in in American political science, uh, that is to say, studying the United States, which is almost kind of sorted by the stature of the institution, right? So studying the presidency is high status, hmm. studying Congress is high status, studying education is low status. And that's, I think, partly... Um, because, like, you know, the presidency is prestigious and local politics is not considered prestigious uh, in a kind of, uh, you know, in the in sort of larger world. Um, and so it's the bizarre. things that citizens care the most about, right, is my neighborhood safe or my kids going to a good school, were not really, you know, kind of high priority topics. The one other subtle detail is a lot of social science is organized around. Uh, kind of topics, and so sociology did a lot on protests. And so, if you're studying protests, well, that's sociology, not political science. And it's it's sort of you know it's boring, kind of inside baseball stuff. But that was some of what I was up against. Um, on your second question about harsh feedback, some of it was things like this is just you know this is this is this belongs in a lower status journal. This this is um, a topic for a subfield uh, <laughs> a journal. You know, which again, for the larger world, is like pretty. Um, Uh, esoteric, but like, if you're trying to make your name as an untenured faculty member, like you need to kind of swing for the fences. And I was doing a ton of work and just getting kind of told again and again, this is, is, uh, uh, you know, this doesn't make sense. So, for example, there are things I do that are part of the African American studies training where I'm like, quoting Malcolm X as a theorist or quoting Bayard Rustin as a theorist. And people were like, you know, that doesn't belong in this section that's talking about scholarly uh, ideas. Right. And so so, the, you know, just a, all kinds of buzz saws uh, that, that that I kept having to navigate around.
0: So like in history, obviously. Right. There's a lot of history from below and like Howard Zinnian type of uh, framing. And then uh, is is the whole school of Gene Sharp? Is that part of political science?
4: It's a great question because he is a political scientist, and so you'd think like maybe uh, that would have penetrated the discipline. And 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 in fairness, like we're seeing a transition. I think so. There's 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 great work that's happening now in political science. So some of it, two scholars, uh, Erica Chenoweth and um, Maria Stephen, have a book on the the logic of nonviolence, and uh, they they but they look cross-nationally, comparatively, right. uh, and have found, for example, that nonviolent campaigns work about tw- are about twice as successful as violent campaigns. Um, there's a book uh, by Dan Gillian called The Loud Minority, which has just come out, which I highly recommend. And he finds uh, that you know protests really do change politics. And so, so there is, um, as you say, a kind of more and more evidence and more and more of a kind of body of work that sort of sees these bottom up effects. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that really the dominant view in political science is that elites are, you know, ha, 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 elites dominate political communication. And so whether you're looking at lobbyists or politicians or, you know, celebrities or a uh, big, you know, sort of, you know, newscaster kind of media figures, like their voices are so much louder than everyone else's that uh, in some analyses, we, we, the, the evidence is that marginal groups have almost no influence. And so yeah. folks like Dan and my work are trying to say hey no 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 there is evidence of these bottom-up effects and we need to pay attention to them yeah. so for, pe- for pe- people who only
1: followed the controversy on Twitter it seems to me a lot of people didn't particularly read the you know, your study uh, y- you do say that while while the conclusion of your paper is that nonviolent protest is, is effective you do, you do you do say that violent protest is uh, can be called or can be effective in some situations, right? Or helpful? Or what? How, how would you phrase that?
0: And legitimate yeah. and moral, right? In some case. yeah.
4: So I mean, I think this is this is they they're in some ways. I, I just listened to your discussion with Cornell West, and I think one of the things that really stood out to me was his a uh, case for a kind of just war, right? He says, uh, if I had been in the Jim Crow army, the segregated army, I would have gone to fight Hitler, right? Um, he, you know, he, he gives us another example, right? The, like the anti-apartheid movement. Mandela is sent to prison as part of an armed movement of resistance, right? And so, so we could think about some contexts where against an authoritarian regime where you don't have alternate methods of like redress of your concerns, that maybe violence is... Uh, the, the legitimate means of trying to make your case um, and I think one of the puzzles in the United States in the 1960s is is Jim Crow so authoritarian that violence is legitimate or is the society you know sufficiently democratic a reasonably free press um, uh, uh, you know some capacity for you know First Amendment style you know protest and uh, assembly you know right to assembly is it is it more authoritarian is it more democratic and if it's if you think of it as more democratic, then maybe you've got to choose between uh, maybe the, the 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 kind of more uh, attempts at persuasion the sort of first amendment style we're going to make our case uh, through speech and assembly or perhaps a more second amendment style you know are we going to use a, a kind of a, a more coercive attempt to use force to try and make our case and that's that's kind of the debate I see happening in the 1960s but I don't say that particularly uh, in response to the kinds of brutal white supremacist oppression that's happening in the South, that taking up arms is illegitimate. I think if you read the work of some of the people who are on the front lines, um, there's a great book called That Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. It talks about how uh, for a lot of African Americans in the South, gun ownership and the ability to shoot back was a really important part of keeping the Klan and white supremacist violence at bay. Still though, you, you,
1: you stressed a lot, a couple of things I thought were really interesting, the role of the media, which I'd I'd love for you to expound upon a little bit. I mean, the, the, one of the things that was amazing when I read your paper was just the sheer quantity of stuff that you looked through. I saw that you, you clipped something like 274,000 headlines. and, uh, and uh, Could you explain a little bit of A, what the, what the approach was, what, what the methodology was, what you were looking at, and then B, some of the conclusions that you came to with, in particular with respect to the role of the media in all this.
4: Yeah, so maybe just to kind of step back and start, it's a very big picture, right? So like, like why are people protesting, right? There's been some profound injustice in this case, you know, most recently the killing of George Floyd by officer Xiao right? And that the, the video of that has so enraged people that we have this mass mobilization and at the margins, people are sort of thinking about like, well, what, you know, how can we make our voice heard? And so that's, that's kind of where I begin the papers. You're some uh, activist and you're trying to figure out how do we elevate our concerns in the public discourse? And, and, and you know, the case I use is very much African-American activists in the 1960s as part of the civil rights movement. But, but in my mind, this could be uh, ACT UP, you know, fighting for HIV, AIDS, recognition, funding for research. It could be ADAPT. Uh, ...disabled activists trying to get, uh, you know, changes in laws around disability. So, you're, you're this marginal voice, you're a statistical minority, and you're trying to, you know, get your issues addressed in the larger culture. And what I found in the 1960s was one of the key ways that protesters were able to be effective was to capture the attention of the media. And so in that kind of model, and to be clear, that's not the only way, right, you can do boycotts and um, other kinds of more targeted protests that don't rely on the media. But in the 1960s, as television was becoming uh, you know, a, a, a pervasive medium in the United States, the movement in the early 1960s, the civil rights leaders figured out that if we organize protests that capture national media attention, we can essentially redefine the debate. And so what they started to do very strategically was not just to organize protests against, you know, Jim Crow segregation, but to organize protests that would get TV coverage that was national or get the New York Times to cover it. And in doing so, they were able to get uh, kind of sympathetic coverage that put them in some ways as the heroes in a narrative and Jim Crow as, you know, segregation as the bad guys. And that, that helped to change the national conversation about segregation. The, um, and then the, just to kind of follow through and how that got to politics, well, what I saw in the data was, as there were these mass mobilizations that captured the media's attention, public opinion moved as well. So as, um, you know, there's this massive wave of protests around say the March on Washington, uh, uh, yeah, the March on Washington, the, the, the public opinion polls find that the, when people are asked, what's the most important problem in America, civil rights rises to the top of the list. Uh, and then uh, you can look again a little bit later in 65, when uh, Bloody Sunday, the march in Selma happens, folks like John Lewis are beaten brutally by, uh, by vigilantes and state uh, troopers. That footage gets broadcast nationally. And again, there's a spike in concern about civil rights in public opinion. And what's really striking is that it wasn't just moving public opinion. Within a year of the march in Washington, we get the 64 Civil Rights Act. Within five months of Selma, we get the Voting Rights Act, and so you, you really see a process by which protests are influencing media, are shifting you know kind of what the public cares about and then what politicians are doing in the later part of the 1960s, protesters became more aggressive in resisting white supremacy and we see more protester initiated violence and so there's a wave of uh, you know urban unrest that uh, is um, much more militant and, uh, and and involves significant property damage, injury, in some cases, uh, in many cases, death. Uh, and those events, when covered by the media, tend not to emphasize civil rights, but the headlines focus on crime and riots. And so what I found was that in the early part of the 1960s, A a, a nonviolent event today predicted a front page headline in one of seven different newspapers, Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, a front page headline that mentioned civil rights. In the later part of the 1960s, a protest with protester-initiated violence predicted a headline that mentioned riots. And And again, what we see is that public opinion shifts. So in the later part of the 1960s, following the protest activity, we see these spikes in concern about crime and riots in the summer, declining in the winter, spiking again in the summer, declining in the winter. And that, that I think uh, I, I find is also driving uh, politics and that likely helped the 1968 presidential election go for Nixon who was running on law and order against Hubert Humphrey who was the lead author of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So you have this uh, essentially like a, a sharp contest between civil rights and law and order and it's 68 law and order one. And So you're really talking about the difference between framing
1: a debate over civil rights versus framing a debate over safety or crime, which is the way the media was doing it after 1968, right? I mean, is that what, you're, is that what you mean by agenda seeding? And that when I, I was reading that in the paper, and I was
4: hoping you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so I mean. So two quick details, right? So if you're the protester, right, you're, you're, whether you're ACT UP or uh, you know Angela Davis or Ella Baker, and you're trying to think about like how do I make my mark in uh, politics, how do we get what we want, you you can't quite control the media, you can't control politicians, but you can control your protest tactics, and so the kind of core idea of agenda seeding in in the way I'm you know conceptualizing it in this paper is that you have the ability to kind of um, push your issues into the public consciousness through the media. And there's a, just to give a little bit of context, there's a larger literature in political science called agenda setting. And so the the kind of, the, the, the shorthand of that is um, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the news doesn't tell people what to think, but it's very effective at telling people what to think about, right? Mm-hmm. And so when the news covers something, that becomes kind of salient in the public mind. And so, coming back then to you're a protester, what you can do is kind of seed the media and the media can kind of set an agenda. Mm-hmm. And, um, and 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 the other detail then is that you not only can you kind of get your issues through things like disruption into the media, but you have some control over what I think of as the valence, but you can also, as you put it, the framing of uh, how your uh, movement is covered. And that's where tactics really matter a lot. So, for example, um, you know, I think the, the, the kind of the core strategy of what was happening in the 1960s is often lost. Leaders weren't just, you know, ending up attacked by police. They were picking places like Birmingham because they knew mm-hmm. that there was a police chief there with a hair trigger for violence. And that was likely to result in Images in the news of you know the classic kinds of things—a dog attacking a protester, water hoses on non on peaceful protesters—and those kinds of images on television and in print did a lot of work to sort of say, you, you know, you whites outside of the South who are basically content to allow Jim Crow to persist, you now have to sit with these uh, horrifying images and 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 that the kind of way in which the uh, whites outside of the South sort of just wanted to let the South deal with it, right? This forced the issue onto a national stage and, 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 and told the world like normal politics is not working, right? This is not acceptable. And essentially pushed the larger country to see and engage, it, sort of, it, it made visible something that black Americans knew, that white Southerners knew, but much of white America was ignoring. And so by pushing those issues into the media, they were able to kind of force the country to, kind of to, to address these issues. But as you noted, Matt, like there's, there's a real challenge, which is that for hundreds of years, black life has been represented as lawless in this country. And so you've got this challenge is how do you get our issues, particularly with something like civil disobedience, which is uh, often by definition, you're breaking a rule to try and show the injustice of that rule. So that can be represented as criminal or it can be represented in a long tradition of saying, oh, no, this is this is a fight for rights. This is a redress of grievances. This is classic kind of, uh, you know, First Amendment behavior. And mm. what I found in the ni- early 1960s is those very strategic uh, protests where the direct action often involves repression by the state produced very powerful images that changed the, 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 the national discussion about civil rights. But in the later period, the framing in the media was much more uh, drawing on this history of lawlessness, this kind of mytholo- racist mythology about uh, black people as, as, as being, uh, you know, again, kind of lawless. And, and that became, as, as King says, um, you know, both something that might have contributed to white fear, but also relieved them of any guilt, that they sort of were no longer responsible for addressing the inequity in the South and, and, and in the country as a whole. And so that, in some ways, the evidence I find is that it's moving voting behavior in the later 60s, too, towards safety, towards law and order and away from this commitment to civil rights.
0: I want to ask you about the and I wonder if this relates to the kind of um, opposition or rejection that you face. But what I find refreshing, one of the many things I find refreshing about this paper is that it doesn't pretend not to make uh, kind of recommendations. It doesn't shy away from that. And I wonder if people thought of it as being too activist-y. Um, uh, but I, can, I just wanted to quote two things that you said and ask you about to reflect on them or um, elaborate on them. One is from an, uh, an interview you did with Science News. And, and the person interviewing you said, critics have said your study puts too much responsibility on protesters, what do you think? And you said, what's important is the causal story I'm trying to tell a story that says this is all about white moderates deprives the protesters of their agency. I want to begin the story with despite overwhelming odds, the subordinate group at the margins of society has power. And the question is, how can they use that power to advance their interests most effectively? And then, sorry, I hope it's okay if I'm nerding out a little bit and and quoting you. Um, And then you also, and that was from an interview. And then at the end of your your, um, uh, paper, you say, the results of this article suggest that statistical minorities and stratified democracies can overcome structural biases to influence and frame the news, direct elite discourse, sway public opinion, and win at the ballot box. For subordinate groups in democratic uh, polities, though, tactics matter. An eye for an eye in response to violent repression may be moral, but this research suggests it may not be strategic. So is that like frowned upon that to, to make such um, overt uh, kind of it's not policy recommendations, right, because part of the issue here is that you're talking to people who are in a kind of decentralized movement as opposed to talking to people like in SNCC or um who are at the you know highlander school but um yeah can I guess can you talk about that if that's considered gauche in academia and what your response to that is
4: let, let me let me start with the first part of your sure. question which yeah. was around the science news question right, and I think yeah. one of the responses that one of the things that has been uh Troubling for some people about the paper is the way in which I'm saying, you know, African American activists have uh, choices they make, and that those choices have consequences, and that for some critics, there's the, the the concern is, well, that takes the lens off of white supremacy, and that takes the lens off of hundreds of years of state violence and you know enslaving people, and how can you? put the kind of the locus of responsibility on these activists when the overwhelming weight of, uh, of, of kind of culpability is with the, you know, the racist system that subjugated African Americans, right? So I think there's a lot to that critique in the sense that, of course, we need to foreground and and make sure that the context is understood, that people are operating under incredibly uh, constrained circumstances and that there's this long history of brutal repression, right? So I don't have any quarrel with that part of the argument, but what I do challenge in this, uh, uh, you know, in that sort of let's center white supremacy story is that if you, if you put too much weight on white supremacy, it deprives activists, uh, you know, in this case, black activists of any agency, right? It's like the structure is so powerful that there's no capacity for there to be resistance. And I don't think that actually reflects what we see on the ground um and I also think just as a as a principle it, 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 it we just see in lots of contexts under the most repressive conditions in prisons, under uh uh, uh you know the, the most repressive authoritarian systems, people figure out ways to slow walk, people figure out how to do hunger strikes right so 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 I think we just see again and again there is some capacity for people even under uh, uh, extreme conditions to assert some kind of uh, dignity and agency. So that—that's one part. Is I I, I want to um, center the activists, right? Um, but that means I also have to take them seriously and consider their ideas, and in this case, consider the consequences of their ideas. And so, I want to I want to. Concede to anybody who says it's really important to emphasize the 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 the, the you know the, the over the, the oppression of white supremacy. It is absolutely real, um, but it is not total, and yeah. that's 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 sort of what I was trying to say in that in that one interview.
0: It, it seems to me like it's very frustrating because if you ask a question about st- the strategic role of violence or nonviolence, um, not this. I f- I feel like I sound like a reactionary, but it's like the response is well the, the the state is violent it's the police who are violent and that's yeah of course like when we on the left when we're talking about this i don't know if there's some like shorthand to to signify that that that's not up for debate the question is like you're saying okay that is true and we have to talk about structural racism but also like you're saying not only is there is it an agency question but isn't it a kind of safety question like don't we have to look at what will result in a bloodbath, moral or, or immoral as the case may be, for um, violence or armed resistance? We should be looking at what can happen, and it's like the the, the people who are protesting do not have a monopoly—not even a monopoly—they're uh, severely uh, underarmed compared to the state, and it does seem a little irresponsible and kind of dangerous to just attribute any discussion of that. To anti-blackness, um, and I get where that comes from. I get where it comes from, but it's also like we have to be able to talk about this stuff.
4: Yeah, I, I, I agree, and I mean that's. I, in order to get all of these analyses in the paper, I had to cut some lines, and one of my favorite lines that that didn't make it was: "There's a core problem if you're a statistical minority, which is by definition you are outnumbered and almost certainly you are outgunned, right?" And so if you are, in 1960, African Americans are about 10% of the population, country's about 90% white, um, it is a heavily armed country, it is uh, perfectly comfortable with using extra legal means to repress social movements, it, uh, you know, there, there are uh, essentially targeted assassinations of people like Fred Hampton. And uh, you know, you know, COINTELPRO, active efforts to do things to break up things like these peaceful movements. You know, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, right? So you've got this, this incredibly repressive uh, state infrastructure that is doing everything in its power to try and dismantle an insurgent movement. Um, And 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 some of what I find sort of oddly circular in the kind of critiques of the work is people say, well. You know, but what about all of that state repression? You know, it, it's not like um, people like Bayard Rustin, who was set up in a sting operation uh, uh, as a gay man, isn't aware of right. you know, the, the ways in which the state uh, can engage in um, extra legal kinds of efforts to smear people. It, you know, it's not, and he, and he was also an out communist, right? I mean, he's right. very clear on what, what he's up against. And so it's not, and so th- th- these people understand that those are the conditions and they're trying to navigate within that context. How do we make change? So, so I think you know, you're exactly right. It's really important for us to always emphasize that these were exceedingly difficult circumstances because of the ways in which uh, you know, the, the state and allied vigilantes were willing to repress them, these these kinds of movements. Um, but again and again, what we see is people are in fact able to overcome those odds. And that's, that's I mean, to your point, we can learn from that. The one other detail and, and just, um, you know, this came up in the Cornell West interview you did uh, uh, recently. He says, and I thought this was really striking that in his conversations, he said with Stokely Carmichael, later Kwame Touré uh, and, you know, quoting Malcolm X, that the, the logic of by any means necessary is a logic of, you know, we care about the ends, not the means. We care about the consequences, not how we get there. And uh, Professor West's intervention was, well, I, you know, I have, I, I want us to get there in a in a, in a moral way. Um, but what I'm, you know, what I find in the paper is you can you can actually seed the moral part of the argument for at least some of the for some of the outcomes, and say, you know, get it on on by that test by the any means necessary, by do the ends justify the means test, does this work? And in some really important ways, it moved the country towards repression, not towards civil rights. It moved the country towards tough on crime, precisely the sorts of issues we now are trying to you know, dismantle. Um, and, and so if if, 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 the, if the only measure you use is consequences, by that measure, uh, you know, Stokely Carmichael should still think this was uh, an approach that, that that ended up producing, you know, at best, a mixed bag of results.
0: What about the radical flank uh, thesis or, or idea, which is that, you know, the, the threat of violence or more violent responses shifts everything over to make it that much easier for the nonviolent negotiators or protesters to achieve some aims?
4: As a general rule, cross-nationally, I think there's probably... Uh, you know a good case for that—that that, that that the threat of uh, a more extreme—you um, know—you have to choose negotiating partners if you're the, the the group in power, and you'd rather negotiate with the moderates, not the extremists. Um, and so that maybe helps strengthen the moderates. In the U.S. case, the major victories of 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Voting Rights Act, those are happening before. So I mean, like for example, the Voting Rights Act passes. And the Watts uprising is about eight days later. So like, Yes, Malcolm X is a presence, and yes, there is uh, there are some other uh, uh, you know uprisings. There's a, a violent protest in in Harlem in '64, but but basically Powell, right? yeah. most most of that violent unrest is happening in the later period, and so it, it's not clear that the radical flank is much of a threat, right? The Black Panthers are uh, sorry, the uh, the Black Power movement and the Black Panthers are coming later in the '60s, and so so I don't think it's a particularly good argument for the early part of the 1960s and the major Major victories that we see with those uh, civil rights acts.
1: I'm obviously getting old. I haven't been in cam- on campus for a really long time, uh, but it does seem like there's been a major sea change in the consensus about whether or not nonviolence works. To the point where, um, you know, especially in the controversy surrounding your paper, we see these this, what looked to me like a pretty amazing shift in, in attitudes. Right? Like not only has has it fallen out of fashion somewhat among people who claim to be on the left or, or, or describe themselves as left as leftists, but it it got so far as, as to the point where somebody who retweeted your article was, was accused of being ra- literally, literally racist for even making that kind of suggestion. Do you have a, a, a theory or a thought on a, whether this is actually a real trend, whether, whether people have changed their minds about whether nonviolence was effective uh, in, in American history and B, um, you know, if, if so, Where's that trend coming from? Why are people suddenly valorizing this other approach and not looking at uh, other issues, if that's the case?
4: Yeah, I, I definitely have noticed a set of responses that are essentially dismissing nonviolence from people who I think of as as otherwise fairly you know thoughtful. Um, so there's, so let me, let me, let me come to that. But let me speak to the kind of first part or the second part of your question first, which is that one of the things I've seen in how we talk about, uh, you know, riots, violent uh, protests, uh, you know, you know these, these moments of high contestation where people are fighting for uh, to be seen and for their rights is that there's a lot going on. And in the contestation over what's going on, the, 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 the events mean different things to different people. And so what we saw when my paper first came out and there was this debate between a data scientist and some um, more activist folk on Twitter was he was doing what I would do, what a social scientist would often do, which is to say, well, you know, let's be analytical and kind of talk about the data, the numbers and the results. Um, And for other people, I think this was a moment where there was still a kind of deep introspection about the killing of George Floyd. And for people, these uh, you know the protests that escalated to violence and the burning of the police station were uh, a moment of almost something fu- like a funeral. Right? People are in—they're uh, angry, they're mourning, they're enraged. And so, you know, showing up at that kind of event and saying, uh, you know, to use a kind of to, to push the analogy maybe a little hard, right? To show up at a funeral and sort of say, so you know, what do you think the house? You know, what will what, what, Granddad's house sell for? Um, is an important and practical question, but not at the funeral, right? And so part of the kind of way in which um, this this, this, uh, you know, this data scientist kind of walked into a buzzsaw was to do what I would also do, which is to think in fairly dispassionate terms about what uh, you know, relative effects of different kinds of tactics might be, and for people who are trying to express their you know, grief, um, that, that just felt you know, not just inappropriate, but almost profane. Right? And so I think that's one part of where we often talk past each other. And, 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 and that's something I'm trying to get better at, is that even though I kind of live in the numbers, that it's really important for me to recognize this is not just about numbers, right? There are, there are, there are people who have been killed and those profound injustices, those acts of state violence are, are, are the beating heart of why people are mobilizing and, and that has to be recognized, right? So, um, and at the same time, we can't sit in a state of mourning perpetually Right, we've got to think about how do we advance issues. How do we? Uh, how how can activists be effective? And so I think coming back to Katie's earlier question, any kind of uh, you know mode of rhetoric that says well certain questions are off limits, right? It's immoral to consider the consequences. Uh, as as I had one uh, uh, person responded to me on Twitter. Um, or as I often see in some of the other kinds of responses, people start saying, "Well, there is no such thing as nonviolent protest. Nonviolent protest because there's always state violence. The state is the source of all violence." Um, and 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 there's sort of what I would think of as a kind of uh, reduction of you know you know we're, we're using language to eliminate whole categories of, uh, of of meaning, right? So I can in our data we you know it's, it's imperfect, but um, just because we can't tell when day becomes night doesn't mean we call everything dusk. So we're able to kind of code events as, you know, the March on Washington is a peaceful protest. Um, in Selma, the protesters are peaceful and the state is violent. We can kind of take those events, turn them into numbers, and then sort of say, well, what kinds of outcomes do we see when we get, you know, protesters peaceful and state peaceful, protesters peaceful and state violent, and so on. And if we sort of say there's no such thing as nonviolent protest or all uh, state violence, you know, state violence dominates everything. Then there's no meaningful way to kind of engage with these issues. And just to wrap, I, I, I think part of what I observe, going back to Katie's question about the radical flank, is in some ways it's, it, it feels to me like nonviolence is um, you know is too moderate. And clearly, over the last two weeks, we've seen a massive wave of overwhelmingly peaceful protests, and also a remarkable documentation of what. Uh, some analysts are calling a police riot all of this uh, just excess force used by police on peaceful protesters, and so so we are seeing something that looks in some ways like the 1960s, and it seems to me there is an overwhelming consensus that people want peaceful protest, but um, it's almost as if that's uh, it, you know it, it, it's considered insufficiently radical in some circles, and so it's just kind of dismissed as either categorically it doesn't exist. Or um, the analysis that finds it might have been effective is is you know immoral or or, or, or uh, you know incorrect.
0: I mean, it, it seems like also there's a um, some ability to like walk and chew gum at the same time and kind of say that you know uh, well a couple of things. One is I, I'm I find it interesting and kind of troubling that so much of the discourse about violence fails to distinguish between whether or not you support it, but there is a difference between looting. And, and and harming a human being very directly and intentionally. Um, I wonder if we just need to also kind of shift the way we talk about certain things. Um, and on a related note, uh, can't we acknowledge that there is a real difference between state repression and random um, violence that occurs in a decentralized, disorganized protest? Can't we acknowledge that and make a moral argument that distinguishes between the two? Uh, push back against the kind of false equivalence and also look at the use of nonviolent tactics? Is, would that be a, a better way to kind of like, you know, build bridges?
4: I, I think that's right. And, and, and let me offer another kind of way in which I think it's important that I uh, uh, you know, acknowledge some of the competing claims about my work, right? There is some evidence, and, and I show this in my paper too, that violence helps draw the media, right? So if you're trying to get attention, Violence can be very effective, um, and you know, again, like a, a police station going up in flames is a way to make elites in particular sort of stop what they're doing and say, "Okay, wait, you know, something is something serious is happening in America." Um, and so, so I think it, it, there is evidence that violence can do work for subordinate groups, and I think you're exactly right that we need to sort of distinguish between the kind of systematic repression of the state and the sort of uh, kind of chaotic kind of, of things that can happen people ransacking a store what's been interesting for me is to listen to some of my elders so I, again Cornell West sort of says you know I want to I want to I want to condemn looting yeah I um, that. and kind of. and that's that's something I actually don't do in the paper and I, I you know again I'm sort of'm I'm, I'm not making a moral claim about whether those things should be considered political or not um, somebody who I admire greatly a guy named Professor Claiborne Carson, who's at Stanford and oversees the Martin Luther King Papers Project, he says, you know, the people there are there are there are opportunists who come into these protests. They see chaos and they, you know, they 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 seize the opportunity to advance their own interests, which might be uh, engaging in an act of of uh, uh, you know of, of, of ransacking a store. Um, and he wants to sort of distinguish between the. What he thinks of as kind of opportunists and the people who are actually engaged in something that's more political, I, I, I I just you know I kind of it's not central to my argument whether or not how we clarify those things because ultimately for me coming back to Matt's question from before the question is how does the media cover it and in the 1960s the media was overwhelming I mean I think it's important to consider that the southern media was pro segregation on the whole the non-Southern media was essentially content to allow Jim Crow to persist. And the whole reason there, these protest movements were so important was to force that uh, kind of indifferent media outside of the South to begin to take Black interests seriously. Like prior to these movements, the only media that cared about discrimination and and, and, and Black concerns was uh, the Black press, right? And so what these protest movements did is force media that had not been paying attention to, 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 you know, to sort of cast it, to put, focus their lens on the brutality of Jim Crow. And, um, and so if we think about, well, what is the media going to do, then whether or not the looters are protesters or not is sort right. of second order, right? The question is, how does it get reflected as a headline, as a clip? And if, if uh, as we saw, as I was watching um, that first weekend, Chris Cuomo at one point there's a Starbucks in L.A. that's being vandalized. And Chris Como was going out of his way to say, uh, you know, if you look at those people, it's a multiracial group, and you know, this is probably some people who are just kind of out, you know, thrill seekers, and some people who are protesters, and some people who are Black Lives Matter, but some people who might be just, you know, anarchists, and and you know, it wasn't a particularly like deep analysis, right? I just kind of color commentary as we're watching this footage, but but it complicates the story, right? It's not just treating this is as, uh, as a kind of black pathology, and so. The media can tell a story that's less focused on a crime narrative. It can say there are legitimate interests underneath this anger. Um, but that's really where the action is. And in the 1960s, the kind of subtleties about who's a looter, who's a protester, you know, that didn't make the news. What made the news was riots. And if riots are the headline, then the white public shifted to being concerned about crime and law and order. For me, the last question is
1: very much related to that which is, you know, how, how, has, how, how changes in the media and the structure of this business impact or potentially impact your, your analysis. Because there are a lot of things that are the same. The press then and now, I think, is fundamentally incapable of not putting compelling pictures on television or, or they have a very difficult time doing that. And so th- it's always going to be uh, an effective prot- protest tactic to put, to force them to, to look at uh, these kinds of images and put them on television. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot more media than there was back then. There's social media, which is a new phenomenon. Um, how, how have those phenomena changed maybe the analysis versus what took place in the 60s and 70s?
4: Yeah, I think that's one of the richest questions about trying to make sense of how this moment is both similar and different. And so I think one thing that for me feels very similar is that at root, we are humans compelled by stories and have emotions that might be empathy and might be fear. And so the video that Darnella Frazier, Fraser, 17-year-old uh, young woman shot of the killing of George Floyd and subtle things like seeing his face, hearing him, you know, fight for his life, hearing him cry for his mother, watching the life drain from his face, seeing the sort of totally callous, almost like sociopathic indifference of uh, of the officer, like that does a lot of work in the public consciousness in a way that I think seeing, uh, you know, uh, vigilantes beat. Uh, you know, peaceful protesters in Bloody Sunday also works to sort of say, oh, wait, you know, who, who, who do I want to align myself with as a viewer? If I'm somebody who's not deeply invested in white supremacy, and but I'm also not particularly concerned about, uh, uh, you know, black equality, then I might watch that. And, you know, but I, I, I could be moved either way. And you see a kind of stark depiction of, of, in some ways, good and evil, and you want to align yourself with uh, the, the, the the underdog not the not 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 the stormtrooper right and, and so I think that kind of power of images remains the same and I think when we've seen and we've seen echoes of that in like the footage of the 75 uh, year old white man in Buffalo who gets pushed over by police and that image has been shown uh, you know again and again the uh, kind of the taking of uh, Lafayette Park by the the. the uh, you know, sort of National Guard and police uh, for for President Trump's photo op. All of those things, I think, played actually to the hands of the protesters. And in that way, are very much an echo of the 1960s, where if we see peaceful protesters met with, uh, you know, excess force by the state, it makes everybody say, wait, 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 you know, it, it does feel like the police are out of control. It does feel like there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, at the same time, you're exactly right that the the, the 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 media space is super fragmented and so you know there isn't uh, uh, you know three news channels and a kind of single story that's coming out of this and i have no doubt that on a bunch of social media feeds some people are getting a blue lives matter narrative and some people are getting a black lives matter narrative and that the um that there is going to be this kind of ways in which fragmentation and polarization make it harder for there to be a single story that the country is engaged or you know, kind of hears. But what's been striking over the last few weeks is the degree to which you know, it, an overwhelming majority of people say they are sympathetic to the concerns of the protesters. And I think that speaks initially to the power of that video shot by Darnella Frazier, and also the ways in which overwhelming the protesters, I mean, if my evidence from the 1960s uh, has something to say that, that that pattern of peaceful protesters met by, by, a, by a brutal state is a, a particularly powerful way to make the case for uh, keeping our eyes on an injustice. And I, sh- I should add as, as one more detail, like it's an exceedingly hard tactic to sustain that people, uh, you know, experience trauma when they are, you know, attacked by the police. They might be there. Might be injuries. There are deaths, both of officers and of protesters. And into that kind of tumult, it's just a very hard. Uh, uh, you know, it's hard to sustain a, a peaceful movement because I think it 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 may in fact radicalize some of the folks who are who are objects of repression, and that means that it, you know it's unstable, and we may see. Uh, it, you know, things either remain peaceful, or they may uh, explode. And that explosion may be in response to, you know, tear gas or uh, uh, rubber bullets. And, um, and if that happens, it it, it may look more like uh, a period where, the, uh, you know, those folks who are kind of the fence sitters are maybe pulled a little bit more towards law and order away from civil rights. Right now, though, what it appears is that, the overwhelming national public, uh, you know, uh, consensus is, is is that we do need to do something, and that people are sympathetic to the concerns of protesters. So, so that feels like very much like an echo of the period leading up to '64.
0: How much of this, though, is is kind of not a mo- point at all? But like, how much of this is? complicated by the fact that we don't have, or there are not things like the Highlander School, there are not organizations like SNCC, there are not organizations like CORE, uh, Southern Leadership, uh, what is it, SELC. Um, it, it almost seems like this kind of, the, the discipline and training that would be needed to sustain a nonviolent movement um, would require some kind of uh, movement growth and organization or would require
1: discipline and training.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I don't want to say that in and at all condescending. And I think it's so important to, to 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 ground this in a in a you know, in an in a framing that is not mo- morally condemning um, looting the same way it morally condemns police violence. Um, but yeah, how much how much what how, what is to be done on that level?
4: So I think it's really important to appreciate that there has been organizing that's been happening that, that that's not entirely visible right so there are groups like the movement for black lives that have been bringing the um you know what was at one point called the leaderless movement folks together to try and build some of that uh organizational capacity some of the kind of you know intellectual and and policy infrastructure um we do see groups uh that are Doing some of that training and organizing. And I think this is one other important point, which is that a movement is not just protest. This is another thing people uh, on the ground often say to me is like, you know, you, you focus a lot on what the newspaper covers, but a lot of what we do as organizers isn't seen. And I think it's really important to appreciate how much of what allows there to be, uh, a, a, you know, a successful um, protest is uh, unobserved. Uh, you know, capacity building that's happening uh, on the ground. But I agree with you; we need a lot more of it, and and I think it's really important to for people to also develop tactics. My wife shared uh, a story with me of one event where protesters are throwing water bottles at police. The police are getting really agitated and are threatening to kind of, you know, uh, go in and uh, and you know and, and really crack down. and uh, this black woman who had training as an organizer sort of goes to the police and says, if I get people to stop throwing water bottles and they settle down, um, you know, will you back off with the agreement that if anybody throws another water bottle, you get to arrest me immediately. Right. And, and you know, send me to the dungeon. And then she gets up in front of the uh, crowd and says, you know, I'm I, I, this is my language, not hers. But she's almost made herself a hostage right. and said, if you throw water bottles, then I'm being taken away. Right, and that's a very uh, creative solution to de-escalate a conflict, and but it's also one that could potentially be replicated, right? And so we do need to help people develop those kinds of uh, de-escalation tactics and to be able to um, make protest movements effective, so that the the I mean the, the way that kind of the core of it for me is I, I was on a radio program and there were like three different questions that came in around nonviolence versus violence, and it occurred to me that like as much as I care about you know, tactics, if we're talking about tactics, we're not talking about justice, right? Mm. And like the heart of what we want a protest movement to do is to focus the national, uh, you know, conversation on the injustice. And if, and if we're talking about some core injustice in our society, then you can build a winning coalition, um, is, is the evidence from the 60s and I think other moments as well. If the national conversation is, you know, why are protesters, you know, uh, you know, burning cars, then we've taken our eye off of George Floyd. We've taken our eye off of Breonna Taylor, right? And that's, that's why it's so important for there to be the kind of infrastructure, the organization, the capacity to turn a mobilization into a national conversation about the injustice. Um, but you're exactly right. That infrastructure is is is, is it, it, more of it is needed, and it's um, and it's also has to be done long in advance because you don't know when uh, a police killing will turn into a video, will turn into one of the largest protest movements in decades.
0: Did the burning of the bill of the police department, though? Did that? lead to action? Um, obviously, the elites take it seriously. The question is, I guess, you know, whether or not it's going to lead to a law and order response um, more than a justice or rights response. But how do we see the impact of that?
4: So I think it's useful to consider a couple of things around that question. And it's, it's, a, it's an important question. And I've been uh, you know, puzzling over that myself, too. So uh, this, this, this professor at, at uh, UPenn, Dan Gillian, he sees violence as just an amplifier right? So he, if you, if there's, if there's a violence at your event, that's, you know, like if it was a bigger event, right? It's more likely to get media yeah. coverage. As Matt yeah. described earlier, you know, I, I worked in local news for a while and, um, and he's exactly right. Like, it, it, you know, what is visual is just has an incredibly magnetic draw for, you know, television in particular. So a burning building is like a very powerful uh, way to get media attention. Um, and at the same time, what, uh, you know, where I, uh, it, it's not that I disagree with uh, Dan Gillian's work, but I, I find if there's a, enough violence, then it's not just attention-getting, it changes the, 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 the nature of the conversation. And so what I think what's different about Minneapolis as compared with something like what happened in uh, the Watts uprising is in Los Angeles in 1965, it's estimated there were 3,000 incidents of arson, right? And so the way to think about this perhaps is that there's a kind of dose response: a small amount of violence gets you media attention, but the conversation in the media and the public still remains largely focused on the concerns of the protesters, some underlying injustice. If there's a lot more violence, right? You know, uh, in a, a case like Detroit, the National Guard comes in; they fire approximately fourteen thousand rounds of ammunition in a residential area. Uh, as, as, as Professor West said previously, right? Dozens of people killed. If 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 the story becomes about injury, death, and uh, arson, then, then we're no longer talking about the core injustice. And so, so I think at, at a, sm- a small amount of violence, uh, that may in fact be helpful to get attention as Dan Gillian finds, but I think my results suggest a large amount of violence. And, and, and here, the scale in the 60s is just vastly larger than anything we've seen uh, in, the, in the current wave of protests by protesters, right, the, 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 the police violence has been, you know, quite shocking, um, that, that, that that suggests the uh, a larger dose might contribute to that law and order narrative, but the small dose keeps doesn't 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 move the conversation that, that you know how the media are framing it too far away from rights.
0: And Mondare Jones won his primary. I just want to give him a shout out. Um, black and gay uh, congressional candidate. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because he, he in his very moving speech, uh, cited Bayard Rustin. It's really nice to hear someone mention Bayard Rustin in, on uh, national politics. So.
4: Yeah, uh, Rustin is, 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 for me, one of the kind of core, uh, you know, he's, he's both the core strategist, right, organizes the March on Washington, but is also a really critical theorist in that he is, you know, he understands that the only way African Americans as a statistical minority can get their voice heard is to build a coalition. And so he's like, we've got to have, uh, you know, white liberals and union members and clergy and African Americans and some white moderates to build the governing coalition. For civil rights and that's that becomes a very unpopular position but at some level without that governing coalition you 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 know you're, you're at the mercy of another majority and in the in the 60s that was a, a pro-segregation majority
0: right and there's a class element and we don't have time to talk about it but i want to thank you also you and, and cornell west both mentioned this the kind of you as you've referred to in interviews a tale of two cities where there's a lot of improvement with the civil rights movement for the uh, more middle class to upper class black people and not as much for the um, uh, which relates a lot to uh, Bayard Rustin, also.
1: Th- thanks so much for coming. I would really, really appreciate it.
4: Oh, what? I'm really grateful for the opportunity. This has been a great discussion. Thanks Thank
1: so, much. so
0: much. Thank you
1: It's funny. Uh, I was just, uh, I was reading uh, Gulag Archipelago just over the weekend, and you know this whole question of does nonviolence work? You know, one of the things that he said is that. The Nazis and the Soviets—they solve the problem of nonviolent protests. They just keep killing uh, when right. you know w- when you try that, and they won't stop. And there's never going to be a shame component. So the question about whether or not that form of protest really works really depends on what your assessment of uh, of the society that you live in. And right. um, are you are you fundamentally completely pessimistic about the about, about the ability of the American state to change, or are you not? You know, pr- his research certainly is in the direction of the there was a capacity for this country to change when it was in an even worse shape than it is now. So, um, but you know, a little people obviously feel differently about that. But I think that's an interesting question.
0: I mean, not to sound corny, but I do feel like the biggest, the most important thing about this is to be able to have the debate and you don't have to. That doesn't mean you are underestimating or, or de-emphasizing the role of police violence. Uh, I just want to make that, I mean, I don't mean to make that clear in a way to cover my ass from cancellation. I just think it's so important.
1: To me, I, I find that a very bizarre reaction because no matter what, the people in the situation have choices they have to make, right? right. So if you're, if all he's doing is studying them or what happens yeah, when, sure. we do, when we do A and when we do B, what happens, right? And yeah. uh, the, the, the notion that even asking that question is, is is racist somehow um, I, I find really strange I mean in other words he's he's, he's presenting data that that um, you know that he that he's done a study in and the, the idea that he's it's insufficiently contextualized at uh, you know th- throughout um, is is somehow uh, you know a wrong think I, I I don't particularly agree with that. All right. On that note, uh, thanks for tuning in to yeah, thank you. And-,
0: and you can find Omar Wasow at OWASOW, O-W-A-S-O-W. Um, and also, it's, it's worth mentioning that his paper that faced so much trial and tribulation and rejection was, you know, no big deal, but was published uh, at the American Political Science Review, which is published yeah. by Cam- Cambridge. And University. for
1: those who want to look it up, by the way, it's called Agenda Seeding, How 1960s Black Protests Moved Elites, Public Opinion and Voting. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll, we'll see you next week.